You're listening to Ask the Expert on Sprott Money News. Well, hello again from Sprott Money News and SprottMoney.com. This is your Ask the Expert segment for February 2020. And joining us for a little 2020 vision is Luke Groman. Many of you are familiar with Luke. He is the founder of the macro thematic research firm Forest for the Trees. And it's a pleasure to get a chance to visit with him. Luke, thank you for taking some time uh, to visit with us. It's Brought Money News. Thanks for having me on, Craig. I'm excited to be here. Hey, and before we get started, we have some additional news for all of our regular listeners to these segments. If anyone is planning on attending the 2020 PDAC conference, it's coming up in Toronto at the end of this month, be sure to let us know because Sprott Money will be hosting a warm-up event on Saturday evening, February the 29th. And this will, in fact, warm you up. It's from 6 to 8 o'clock at a place called the Pravda Vodka Bar. Uh, you can add your name to the guest list by emailing us, submissions at SprottMoney.com. This event is going to fill up fast, so... Let us know as soon as possible if you'd like to attend. Uh, Luke, before we get started, please tell everybody a little bit about your background and Forest for the Trees. Absolutely. So uh, by way of background, I spent, uh, I've spent about 25 years uh, in finance, uh, started off uh, as in, in equity research at uh, a regional brokerage firm in, in Cleveland called Midwest Research, where you pioneered um, our, uh, bottoms up fundamental channel check research. We sold that business. I, I, I then transitioned to uh, sales with Midwest. Uh, we sold that business to First Tennessee Bank in 2001. And when I was there, I was one of the founding uh, editors of a weekly product called Heard in the Midwest, which was a uh, both summation of our uh, bottoms up fundamental channel check research and married it a lot of times with thematic and macro data points uh, that I was putting together on my own. It became a very widely read and popular, very early genesis of me doing what I'm doing. Worked for FTN Midwest in the institutional equity sales, calling on institutions in uh, New York, uh, Midwest, uh, the West Coast, Texas, uh, for another five years after that. And then in 2006, started um, uh, with myself, with uh, 20 other partners, uh, Cleveland Research Company, uh, which uh, did uh, some of the same type of research. I reprised my role there, putting together this uh, thematic piece. And that is uh, finally in, in 20, early 2014, I parted ways amicably with Cleveland Research Company uh, to uh, uh, found Forest for the Trees, FFTT. And what we do is aggregate a large amount of publicly, disper- uh, publicly available data uh, uh, from all disparate uh, sources, uh, and we, we organize it in a very unique manner, uh, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks. And uh, we do that because it's been our experience that economic bottlenecks are, are where you want to put your money um, if, if they're set to benefit from that bottleneck or where you want to move your money from if they're set to be hurt by that bottleneck. And so we, we publish uh, reports uh, both uh, for retail investors as well as for uh, institutional investors, our retail product called Tree Rings, um, and it's uh, been a very popular product. And like I said, we do some institutional, uh, in-depth institutional research as well. So um, the uh, that's sort of the 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 the, third, the nickel tour, I guess, if you will, of FFTT. Well, we'll make sure I put a link on this very first page of the of uh, the YouTube presentation so you can see how to get to Luke's website. 
And also, please, uh, I might want to add myself, follow Luke on Twitter. Luke, you're a great Twitter uh, follow. The information you provide is always very helpful, really, on a daily basis. So thank you for that. Thank you. All right, my friend, I've got seven questions that uh, Sprout Money customers and regular listeners have submitted for you, wide-ranging kind of macro questions. If you're ready, we can probably just dive right into the first one. It has to do with, uh, I guess, in central bank policy, we've all been worried about uh, maybe hyperinflation, or maybe that's too strong of a term, but significant price inflation that may impact uh, the especially the lower income, middle income people who are, you know, getting pulled in so many different directions because of central bank policy over the last few decades. So the first question deals with that and it's, it mainly has to do with physical precious metal and can physical precious metal ownership protect the retirement savings of just regular middle income investors? The short answer is yes, I think it can. Uh, the longer version of that of what we've said to our clients for a long period of time is that I think ultimately what we are seeing is something that uh, has not been seen uh, in in a long time, which is a if you go back in time to 2000, we had a stock bubble. Stock bubble was uh, effectively papered over by kicking that bubble upstairs to the housing sector. And so we created a housing bubble that helped paper over the fallout from the stock bubble. And then the, st- the housing bubble, uh, which by nature was also a bank bubble, if you will, a financial system bubble, when that burst, we kicked the problems upstairs to the sovereign level. We had sovereigns in the West in particular, but globally, uh, basically run up their debt to, debt to GDPs to paper over the housing and, and banking crisis. And so now we have a global sovereign debt bubble, and we haven't seen one of these in at least 50 years and, and really more like 100 years. And so pretty much nobody alive investing today was investing the last time we had anything even remotely similar. And I would say, you know, the thing that was most similar was in late 60s uh, for the lifetimes of, of older investors. And you marry that with some of what happened during World War II and then what happened in the 20s. The punchline is people, most investors just don't have the context, I think, to realize the potential implications of a, of a bursting sovereign, uh, global sovereign debt bubble. And really, when it bursts, there's only one outlet, and that's the currencies themselves. And so for us, um, we look back for guidance to history, you know, what happened when the, you know, in the late 60s, when something similar happened? Well, in the 1970s, gold rose against everything. Silver rose against just about everything, bonds, stocks, commodities, etc. If you look at what happened in the 30s, gold rose against bonds, stocks, pretty much everything. Um, and, and, you know, the 20s, when you had, you know, sovereign debt, uh, global sovereign debt bubble burst spectacularly, uh, for the debtor nations, gold was literally a lifeline in places like Germany and in, at times in France, uh, Russia, Japan, uh, industrialized nations at the time who saw severe rates of inflation. So uh, the bottom line to me is, you know, we look at the milder cases, but, you know, I think a mild case of something like the 70s where, uh, you know, when you have these sovereign debt bubbles uh, burst, uh, historically gold and silver rise against just about everything. Yeah. Well, that's actually a very good segue then into the second question that was submitted. You mentioned central bank uh, policies and, and the amount of debt that has been created and the sovereign debt that's been created. Yet some of that tick data lately has shown that central bank purchases of U.S. treasuries has been falling. At the same time, 
that we're seeing really record central bank gold demand. What do you make of that trend? <laughs> I, I think people, uh, particularly in the U.S., but globally, should be paying a lot more attention to the trend than they generally are. Um, you, like you said, you, we, we've, we, we've been writing about this a lot to our clients, which has been that since 2013, global central banks have, on a net basis, uh, uh, not bought any treasuries, uh, and they've bought a lot of gold. And uh, they've, in the last several years, been buying the most gold since the late 1960s, which then ties back to the point I made just a few minutes ago, where, you know, in the 1970s, uh, the price of gold rose against everything. Um, and so I think the, uh, you know, at, at a time when uh, global investors uh, are looking to central banks uh, for guidance, for backstopping um, in a way which has never happened in my career and which is, as you know, my 25 year career, which has not happened in most people's lifetimes. It is very fascinating to me that I, we continue to see, particularly in the U.S., uh, investors just ignoring, by and large, uh, the implied message of central banks not buying treasuries but increasing their gold holdings, which is you know, a belief. Uh, I believe they think that gold is where we're entering a period of time where gold is set to rise against um, many other assets. Yeah. yeah you know, we, we often talk about you know, the, the, the basis of the monetary system, the, you know, with the dollar as a reserve currency and the you know, transient quality of that. Um, so I'm just kind of a follow up to that. Do you kind of see weakness in the dollar eventually or maybe a bi multipolar world of reserve currencies? I think I think the where the movie is going is I think you're going to see multipolar a multipolar I think a multipolar world is emerging and I think it is being done through energy and commodity markets and by that I mean uh, you're seeing the Chinese beginning to buy substantial amounts of oil gas uh, iron ore copper in their own currency uh, and and, mm -hmm. and there is no time in the past seventy plus years. Uh, that these commodities have been bought in anything other than dollars. Uh, and so we're already moving in a in sort of a different direction. And I think as that happens, that structurally reduces demand for treasuries. And I think it ultimately structurally increases central bank demand for gold. Um, uh, as you, so I think some of what we're watching on the central bank side is simply uh, a function of, of the world shifting to a more multipolar world as it relates to commodity pricing. What does this mean for the dollar? I think it is, uh, I think the dollar's structure, um, you know, people, is it going to lose its reserve status or not, they ask. And I think its reserve structure is changing. I think the dollar is still going to be a reserve currency for some time to come. I think what we're watching, though, is from 1971 until 2013, I think the Treasury bond was the world's primary reserve asset. And as noted earlier, central banks stopped buying treasuries in 2013 and began shifting those purchases to gold. I think we're seeing a handoff in, a, in, the, uh, in the structure of, of the primary reserve asset where the system gets structured from being dollar reserve currency, treasury's primary reserve asset, and now it is dollar and maybe some others that are uh, uh, reserve currencies uh, and gold primary reserve asset. And I think that's a very important, um, a very important uh, change and shift that is, you know, worth six, seven years into. Yeah. All right. Well, Luke, that's obviously, it's a great segue to our third question. Uh, as we look at central bank policies, we look at Fed policy, where do you think interest rates are going and where do you think these central bank balance sheets are headed? 
Uh, do you have a prediction, a forecast for gold in the next three to five years? <laughs> Higher, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, that's you know that's the easy answer. I mean, I think there's a number of different ways you can you can look at it. I think one of the ways we've analyzed it for clients, and I've written this on Twitter a number of times as well, has been if you look uh, at the market value of the U.S.'s official gold. Um, the uh, in, in that that rel- excuse me the market value of the U.S.'s official gold relative to the amount of U.S. Treasury bonds held by foreigners uh, that percentage was never below twenty percent. Basically, in other words, U.S. official gold was collateralizing foreign held Treasury bonds uh, at twenty percent or more. Uh, uh, it was never below twenty percent up until nineteen eighty nine. Um, and in nineteen eighty, when there was a run on the dollar, when there was a, a gold bubble, if you will. Uh, that percentage was 133%. So uh, in 1980, the United States could have, every holder of a treasury bond from uh, from outside the U.S. could have showed up at, at, at the uh, U.S.'s door, asked for gold instead of those treasury bonds, and the U.S. still would have had 33% of its gold left over. Now that is the definition of a gold bubble. The U.S. had a basically 133% gold-backed foreign held portion of the treasury debt. Today, that percentage, after being 133% in 1980, never below uh, 20% before 1989, that percentage today is around 5%. So just to get back to to 1989 levels, gold would have to be around, uh, call it uh, uh, $6,500. And to get back to 1980 levels, it would have to be close to $40,000. Um, and neither of those are my price targets per se, but I would, I would actually start to think about selling some of my gold somewhere between 7,000 and 40,000, maybe not all of it, but some of it. Um, and you know, it's interesting that assumes things go haywire. Uh, there, there's a, there's a reversion to the mean, I think driven by some of the factors we're talking about before as gold moves back into the system. But the 40,000 of course would be some things have to go wrong on the macro. What's interesting if you watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom Kaplan, who is the CEO of Nova Gold, uh, gave a presentation on Real Vision um, uh, a few months ago, and he noted that just based on supply demand, uh, the uh, um, fundamentals for gold warrant a $3,500 gold price. And his point is, if nothing goes wrong, um, if nothing goes wrong uh, with, uh, with the macro at all, the supply-demand fundamentals alone on gold uh, warrant a $3,500 gold price. So I, to me, that's how I think about, you know, when I say higher, that's that's what I mean by it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. We see a lot of, of comparisons to the money supply, M1, M2, M3, whatever. But I, that comparing gold versus the total amount of treasury debt, I think that is a fascinating way to look at it. And I haven't thought of that before. Um, moving on to the fourth question, Luke, this kind of uh, – uh, goes with that same physical gold demand, uh, I guess, theme that we've been discussing here. You know, we've had this collateral shortage. The, we call it the repo liquidity crisis, if you want, really since September and October of last year. Uh, could that shortage of collateral that seems to, you know, that kind of sparked that last fall, could that encourage greater physical demand by institutions? I think yes is the short answer. Um the it's it's interesting. Uh, very few people in the U.S. that I've talked to are aware that in the December 2017 reforms or updates of the Basel III 
regulations, these banking uh, regulations that uh, mandate the levels of reserves and are ultimately the driving force behind these collateral shortages. There's very few Americans that I've talked to that are aware that in those December 2017 reforms of Basel III, uh, gold receives uh, the same treatment as sovereign debt, uh, as a risk-free weighting, with certain, uh, with certain um, conditions attached to it. And so, to me, I think that was the first uh, hint that um, something that Ken Rogoff, uh, you know, who's you know, been with the U.S. Treasury, was with the IMF, um, talked about in May of 2016, he wrote an article uh, in uh, Project Syndicate called Emerging Markets Should Go for the Gold. And in that, he said there's this risk-free asset shortage going on, and it could be ameliorated by emerging markets uh, moving just 10% of their FX reserves, generally held in dollars, into gold and bidding up the price of gold. And that because the price of gold has no limit, that would then uh, reduce uh, the global risk-free asset shortage. Now, it's a, it, he literally said, because gold has no limit on its price, is a staggering statement from someone like Rogoff, who yeah. is uh, very much an establishment guy. Um, and then 18 months later, we have these Basel III reforms that effectively, again, there are certain conditions attached to gold getting uh, a 0% risk weighting like uh, sovereign debt but basically codifying uh, sort of what, what, uh, what uh, he was saying. So the you know, long-winded way of, of saying that is what I just said, and the short version is, is, yeah, I think ultimately, I don't know how much longer we have to go on with this collateral shortage. One way or another, I think all roads lead to gold. Sure looks that way. All right, switching gears for our final three questions, Luke. Uh, question number five has to do with something that a few folks noticed a few years back, and that is that the CME Group, which runs and manages and owns many of the commodity exchanges here in the U.S., um, they have a what's called a central bank incentive program that they've offered since 2013. What do you think the purpose is behind that? <laughs> Low trading fees, of course. <laughs> yeah, it seems um, like it. I, You know, I will notice a couple things. Um that occurred around that time. Um, you started seeing in, in late 12, so in 3Q12, both the U.S. went to QE forever. Japanese uh, went to uh, a big QE program. Uh, and in late 12 and early 13, the Chinese began basically buying everything, gold that wasn't bolted down, and even some things that were bolted down. You saw just a tidal wave of uh, gold imports from China, into China from you know, Switzerland, from the UK, from the US, etc. So you can see this in the flows. Uh, what's interesting is that in um, we began hearing of stresses in the gold market. Uh, I did. I had a relationship at the time with one of the biggest holders of physical allocated gold in the world. They were a private owner. They would have ranked in the top 20 of uh, sovereign holders. Uh, that's how much they held. Um, and in 2013, a major bullion bank came out and said short gold in April of 2013 which was unusual. And two days later, gold had a seven Sigma sell up or six Sigma sell up yep. basically uh, fell dramatically in a short period of time. Um, when that institution <laughs> call uh, made their short call, they reached out to my relationship, laid out the reason they were saying short gold. And 
um, my <laughs> they then went on to tell my relationship that, that they stood that, that this institution, this bullion bank stood ready to buy any gold that my relationship wanted to sell. So as they were saying short gold, they were actually buying it for themselves. Now, my, my guess is they were uh, buying it for uh, on an agency basis for somebody that was uh, buying a lot of gold. And there were two candidates there, China that we just discussed. And recently had somebody point out as well that that was came on the heels of Cyprus, uh, where Russian oligarchs had money uh, locked up by virtue of what happened there. So it might have been Russian oligarchs as well. But at any rate, uh, there is very substantial circumstantial evidence that there was a run on the bullion banking system that began happening in late 12, early 13. Um, this became very apparent by mid-2013 when gold forward rates went, uh, they inverted, um, which basically began pointing at a shortage of physical gold. Uh, gold, you should, the gold forward rates should never invert because basically your only risk to making a risk-free spread is that you don't get your gold back uh, at the end of the lease. And so the fact that uh, it's very risky, a very rare thing, is, is highlighted by the fact that gold forward rates had only up until that point been negative for five trading days in the prior 25 years. And those were the 1987 stock market crash uh, in August of 1990 when Saddam surprisingly invaded Kuwait, uh, two days in late 99 around the signing of the Central Bank Gold Agreement, and then on 9-11. And so these five days in 25 years, you have this rare event. Then in June of 13, you have um, uh, gold forward rates go negative. And after having been negative for only five trading days in 25 years, they proceeded to be negative for uh, about two-thirds of the trading days for the next 18 months through February 15 when the LBMA uh, stopped reporting uh, gold forward rates. So yep. I do all of this by way of background because – it was recently pointed out to me. I didn't. I, I remember seeing something about this central bank incentive program um, at the time. I never made much of it, but I had not realized that it that it was instituted uh, so close in time to when gold forward rates went negative. And so it is very curious to me, and, and this is probably where I'll leave it. It's very curious to me that it was instituted uh, at a time when uh, gold forward rates went negative and proceeded to be negative for, you know, basically two thirds of the next year and a half of the next year and a half's worth of trading days uh, at a time when gold forward was screaming that there was a physical shortage of, of gold going on globally as a result of a, what I strongly uh, uh, believe was a run on the global bullion banking system that began earlier that year. So that's that's how I'd answer that. I apologize for running a little long on that. <laughs> that's okay. I'm reminded of two things, Luke. That also shook free about what 400 metric tons of uh, what's alleged to be held in the GLD. So they, you know, that price drop. Um, that all that comes to mind. And the other thing is, you know, Luke, you you mentioned the lease rates. Uh, a lot of folks have forgotten about that from 14 and 15. So I appreciate that reminder. And I would just say. When this pricing scheme, this digital derivative and fractional reserve pricing scheme fails, a lot of folks are going to look and say, gosh, how did we miss that this was coming? <laughs> well, oh, 100 percent. And it's very it's very um, I agree. It's going to be. How did we miss this? Um, yep. And it's, it's been hiding in plain sight. Yep. Um, That's right. You know. <laughs> That's right. All right. The final two questions. Uh, I think this is an interesting one uh, to get your opinion on this. 
you know, the, the Fed, even with rates this low, they're complaining about liquidity. They're complaining about the lack of, of loans that are being made. Why doesn't the Fed just simply reduce what they pay, the interest on excess reserves they pay to their banks in order to increase liquidity? You know, the, I think the answer to this question is, is deceptively straightforward or deceptively simple. You know, and I'll, I'll use a metaphor to answer it, right? So I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the with the the uh, Jack Nicholson Tom Cruise movie A Few Good Men, right? It's a great great movie, and there's this there's this uh, 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 pivotal scene in which uh, Tom Cruise has Jack Nicholson on the stand and he has him trapped, and he he says, "Look, if if you know you told me before that you know you didn't give the order to give the Marine a code red in which he died." And you said before you made it crystal clear that when you give orders, they're followed or else people die. And so if that's the case, why did you feel like you had to transfer this Marine off the base to keep him safe if you'd given an order that he was to remain safe since your orders are always followed? And, of course, Jack Nicholson's character has no answer. And so the reason I bring that up is the why doesn't the Fed just eliminate or severely reduce interest on excess reserves and then they they could deploy the hordes of cash out into the economy, mm-hmm. uh, creating the velocity of money they seek. And, and structurally, that's exactly right. If they cut the rate on interest on excess reserves, uh, in theory, excess reserves would flow out from the Fed into the economy. We'd have the inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But like the few good men metaphor, there's a simple explanation. Then it was, he gave the order to give him the code red. Here, the explanation is equally simple. It's, what they're calling excess reserves aren't excess reserves. They're required reserves under Basel. The banks don't have the money. Even if they cut interest on excess reserves, uh, they, 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 there's, they, the, the cash levels uh, are at minimum or close to minimum levels of required. So cutting it would do nothing. It would simply reveal that um, they're more cornered than they realize. Uh-huh. And once they do that, that is going to be an interesting day. If they tried to do that because Reserves wouldn't flow out because the banks have to hold them, uh, those excess reserves, and uh, or those reserves, a minimum level of reserves under Basel. And we'd find out that what's excess, what's called excess is not excess. It's, it's, requ- it's minimum required. And that would then lead to the immediate conclusion, which is, holy cow, the Fed's going to have to grow their balance sheet more than what they're saying. Now, that would actually get inflation going, I think, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that's why I think they're not doing that. But yeah. it's a great question. Yeah, and that's a great answer. All right, and finally, it just kind of gets to silver a little bit. Uh, many folks have noted, I mean, even as we record, the gold-silver ratio is about 90. Um, I thought, you know, nothing to stop it from going to 100. Uh, these are historic levels. What do you think is behind this? I think ultimately it's a case where gold's going to rise against everything, even silver. And the reason I say that is if you know, we go back to my first uh, – in my first response, where we're in a global sovereign debt bubble. For a global sovereign debt bubble, as it bursts, there's two ways out of it. You can either uh, default nominally. In other words, governments around the world, including the United States, say that sovereign paper is no good. We are going to haircut you X percent. Sorry for your luck. Or they will default on a real basis, which is those bonds are money good and we will print as much money as we need to to make those bonds nominally money good in dollar terms. And of course, given that these sovereign bonds underpin the entire system, um, option A is not an option. It's not going to happen. And if it does, we all have better things to do, like finding our next meal. (laughs) um, 
the, the, the reality is that option two is going to be what's happened. It's already begun. It's been happening. It's going to get more aggressive. And so ultimately you still need to reduce the, you know, the, the, uh, the real value of debt. You know, you need something on central bank balance sheets to collateralize that, right. Um, as they print that money to buy. And as you look around central bank balance sheets, there's only one asset on central bank balance sheets that can rise in price that reduces, you know, that basically recapitalizes central bank balance sheets um, uh, uh, against the, you know, the amount of, you know, debt they're going to have to onboard. And that is, of course, gold. Central banks own gold. They don't own silver. And so when we look around at this global debt problem, the way I think about it is I think gold is going to rise against everything, including silver, as we move, as this, as this, you know, global sovereign debt bubble continues to burst, because global central banks are going to buy whatever they need to buy with printed money to keep nominal uh, values uh, whole, uh, and then the price of gold rises as needed to collateralize that on central bank balance sheets. And they own gold; they don't own silver. And this is, you know, uh, paradoxically. Um, <laughs> where gold shines uh, for all of those people say, well, gold isn't used for anything. Um, exactly. Uh, if you use oil to do this, it would take oil at 500 or a thousand dollars a barrel to collateralize central bank balance sheets. And the act of buying up the debt with printed money would collapse the economy. If you use corn or wheat or soy, very useful. Um, it would require them to go to a hundred or $200 a bushel and people would starve to death all over the world. Billions of people, not good. Uh, if you use silver, even silver, um, uh, while it is a precious metal, it also is a very useful industrial metal. And if you take silver to you know, the level needed to fully collateralize the debt out there that central banks are going to have to buy up over time, uh, you're talking about a silver price that suddenly makes uh, a lot of what we're doing in alternative energy, etc., cetera, uh, probably a lot higher break-even rates, uh, which is also seen as unfavorable uh, these days in particular. So it's interesting, if you take gold to you know, a million dollars an ounce, who cares? It's not used for anything. Um, and so uh, that million dollars an ounce is not my price target, but that's, uh, that to me is, is, you know, to boil it down, I think the gold to silver ratio probably keeps rising over time uh, as the global sovereign debt bubble bursts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does there come a time, some substitution effect at least, where, you know, instead of steak, you buy the hamburger, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, and to be clear, like, this is not to say I don't think silver does well. I own some silver myself. Uh, I've owned it. I owned it bigger, a lot bigger uh, once upon a time. Uh, I think it does very well. I think if it's you know if you can only buy afford silver and, and not go, I think it's going to do well. I just think that the ratio of gold will rise versus silver, um, you know, over time. It doesn't necessarily mean it's you know going to go from ninety to a thousand. Um, I mean, it could go from ninety to you know two hundred or something, and under that circumstance, if gold rises, I think silver rises and, and does well also, ultimately. Yeah. Again, we've been speaking with Luke Broman, the founder of the great research firm Forest for the Trees. Before we go, just want to remind everybody, February is the month of the Sprott Signature Sale. It's currently up and running, and there are more than a dozen bullion products on sale right now. To take advantage of some great prices, check out the deals page at SprottMoney.com, or of course, you can always just give us a call at 888-861-0775 to get more info and to make a purchase. Luke, uh, some fascinating information, uh, really great stuff, and I think everybody that's listened 
uh, appreciates it and has enjoyed it and has learned a little something. Thank you so much for your time. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And from all of us at Sprott Money News and SprottMoney.com, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again next month.